Romans chapter 8, verse 12 through 17. So then, sisters and brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The word of the Lord. Um, Brene Brown is a, um, a research professor in social work, a best-selling author, and a popular speaker. Uh, one of the main premises of her work is that human beings are hardwired for love and belonging, but our access to that love depends on a sense of worthiness. So uh, the problem, she says, is that we all have what she calls uh, our worthiness prerequisites. And in one of her books, she gives a list of these worthiness prerequisites. Uh, some of them are things like this. I'll be worthy if I lose 20 pounds. Or I'll be worthy if everyone thinks I'm a good parent. I'll be worthy if I can make a living from my art or my music or some other endeavor. I'll be worthy if I can hold my marriage together. I'll be worthy if I can get married at all. I'll be worthy if I make partner or doctor or some other position of status at work. I'll be worthy if my parents finally approve, or I'll be worthy if this person asks me out. I'll be worthy if I can do it all and, and look like I'm not even trying. Worthiness prerequisites. You could probably add your own worthiness prerequisites to a list like this. Maybe I'll be worthy if I can change my Facebook status on Facebook, or I'll be worthy if I can move the needle in my chosen field, whatever it might be. But our Access to love depends on feeling worthy of it. We have to believe we're worthy first before we can be loved. You know what that leads to? Fear. If, if our access to love and belonging depends on us feeling worthy first, we are going to live fear-driven lives. And fear and all the secondary emotions that come along with that, like anxiety, insecurity, uncertainty, shame, um, drivenness, all of that. If we believe that we have to be worthy first before we can be loved, our lives will be driven by fear. But what if there was a way to live a life that is less driven by fear? Not completely free of fear as if we never experienced that emotion ever again. No, but, but a life that's less driven by fear, less controlled by it, less disabled by it. We're in a series on Romans chapters 5 through 8, which is all about finding new life in Christ. And this passage that we just read takes us right to the center, right to the very heartbeat of how God heals the fear in our lives. How does he do that? Well, let's go through this passage and see three things that God gives us 
that heal the fear in our lives through His Holy Spirit. God gives us a new status, a new experience, and a new foundation, okay? A new status, a new experience, and a new foundation. First, God gives us a new status. In verse 15, Paul begins by saying, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. Now, that little word for is a word that means because. Paul is saying that the reason Christians can live a life that is less driven by fear is because we have been adopted as sons of God. Now, we bristle when we see this, and we want to ask the question, why can't Paul just call us children of God? Why do we have to use this gender-specific language? It's a really good question. First, keep in mind that um, Paul uses other gender-specific terms when he talks about the church. So one of his favorite terms for the church is the bride of Christ. Now, another thing to keep in mind is that um, Paul, a little bit later in this passage, does call us children of God. So he's obviously very comfortable with that language. But here he does use this very specific term, sons of God. Why? The point, when Paul calls Christians sons of God or the bride of Christ, is not to conform people to rigid gender stereotypes. It's not about gender. It's about a specific kind of relationship. So in the ancient world, sonship was a status. Sonship was, so when a wealthy man died, um, his inheritance went to the firstborn son. That means all of his wealth, status, privilege, power, prestige, all of that went to the son. And if you didn't have a son, then you would adopt one. So in the ancient Roman Empire, adoption was a very specific practice that the most privileged and powerful classes of society would use in order to keep all of their power and status within the family. And it was a legal transaction. That means in one moment, all the wealth, status, privilege, power, and prestige, all of that was instantly transferred to the adopted son. Now, um, let me ask you a question. Does this seem a little bit unfair. This system that, that keeps all of the power and the privilege and the status in the hands of men, <laughs> powerful men, so that sonship and all the status that went along with it, that, that was, would have been completely out of reach for most people in society. So why in the world would Paul use a word like this that talks about what we would consider an unjust system? Why would he use a word like that to talk about Christians? The answer is because um, when Paul uses this word, he's not talking about um, God perpetuating the unjust systems of the world. The answer is that through the gospel, God is subverting the unjust systems of the world. It's saying that, that out in the world, you may not have access to this kind of status, but here in the church, anybody can have access to this kind of status in the church. God is not um, perpetuating the unjust systems of the world. He's subverting them. Did you know that um, in the ancient world, uh, the very first Christians were actually considered a radical threat to the social order of society? Why? It's because um, the ancient world was dominated by, it was a very hierarchical society. It was, um, it was a society that was um, very class conscious. So you had the elite rulers at the top, you had the artisans and the workers in the middle, and then down at the bottom you had the slaves. In other words, it was a world that was full of worthiness prerequisites. And so the Christians were 
a, a community in that world that was said, well, that may be the way it is out in the world, but here in the church, that's not the way it is. Here in the church, everybody has equal status because everybody's an adopted son of God. That was considered a major threat to the social order and the stability of Roman society. For instance, Larry Hurtado was a renowned historian of ancient Christianity. He wrote a book some years ago called Destroyer of the Gods. In that book, he talks about different ways that the early Christians were distinct from ancient Roman society. And one of the main ways that the early Christians were distinct from the rest of the world was that they were a multi-ethnic, multi-class community. There was no other community in the ancient world like this. That meant that all of the things that mattered in the world, all of the things that gave you status in the world, that none of that mattered in the church, that in the church everybody had equal status because everybody was an adopted son of God. In other words, in the church, with the God of the Bible, there are no worthiness prerequisites. Now, here's the point, friends. Um, when Paul calls Christians adopted sons of God, what he's doing is he's telling us two very important things that we need to know about what it means to be a Christian. And the first is this. Being sons means that, um, that all of the love and belonging, all of the status and privilege, all of the honor and glory and dignity that we long for, it's, it's ours with God. It belongs to us with God. But second, being adopted means that um, there are no worthiness prerequisites. That all of the, um, the love and belonging that God wants to give you from being a son, that it's just given to you by grace. You don't do anything to earn this status. It's just given to you. It's bestowed upon you. It's a legal transaction. Or we could say it like this, that it's a transfer of stories. So if you notice at the very end of the passage, Paul says that we are children, and here he actually does use the word. So again, Paul is obviously very comfortable with this language. But he says we're children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and notice, fellow heirs with Christ. We are fellow heirs with Christ. In other words, the reason that we can be called sons and daughters and children of God is because all of the status and honor and glory of, of being sons of God, that all belonged to Jesus because he is the one and only unique eternal son of God. But, but Jesus gives us his status, his story becomes our story. It's kind of like um, The Prince and the Pauper, that old book by Mark Twain. I don't know if you've ever read it. It's the story of two boys, one named Tom, a poor boy, and, and a rich boy named Edward who was actually the heir to the throne of England. Um, and Edward and Tom look exactly alike. And so one day they say to each other, hey, what would it be like for us to trade places? And so Edward, the heir to the throne, dresses up in the raggedy old clothes of Tom. And he becomes a pauper. He goes out and he experiences abuse and poverty and injustice in the streets of London. But Tom, the poor boy, dresses up as Edward in all the territorial splendor of being the heir to the throne of England. And he experiences all the honor and glory and dignity and status and privilege that belong to Edward, the heir of the throne. In other words, Edward's story becomes Tom's story. All of the honor, glory, status, and privilege that belong to the heir are all of a sudden, that belongs to Tom. Friends, in the same way, when you become a Christian, all of the honor, 
glory, status, and privilege that belong to Jesus, the heir to the throne of heaven, all of that becomes yours. His story becomes your story. His status becomes your status. And that leads to our second point. First, God gives us a new status. But secondly, God gives us a new experience. Because here's the challenge. It's one thing to say, hey, you have a new status before God now. Congratulations. It's one thing to say that. It's a very different thing to actually experience that status. So if we go back to our passage, notice that Paul says that for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. Now, one of the things that is fascinating about this passage is that throughout this passage right here, Paul is using all kinds of imagery that comes from the Exodus story. Exodus is all about how Israel were slaves in Egypt. But God said, no, no, Israel is my firstborn son. And so God led Israel out of slavery in Egypt. Paul, this passage is full of Exodus imagery. Paul is pointing to the Exodus here and saying that this is a picture of the whole Christian life. But here's the thing that's really kind of unnerving about this. Notice Paul also says that, that we did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. And here he's also pointing to another part of the Exodus story. What is that? If you read through the book of Exodus, one of the things you'll notice is that over and over and over again, the Israelites are constantly wanting to go back to slavery in Egypt. Why? Well, because following God in the wilderness is hard. The wilderness is a place where everything you know is gone. The wilderness is a place where everything you used to trust in is stripped away from you. The wilderness means trusting in God for all the things you need instead of trusting in all the things you think you have control over, but you really don't. And a lot of those things are harmful and destructive in your life to begin with. You know the, the old phrase, better the, um, the devil you know than the devil you don't? For the Israelites, it was better the slavery we know than the God we don't. One of the main themes in the book of Exodus was that the Israelites were constantly falling back into slavery. Not physical slavery, spiritual slavery. Their bodies were out of Egypt, but their spirits were still there. They were still driven by fear. What did they need to get the fear out of them? And what would we need to get the fear out of you and me? Well, let me tell you a story. Um, for centuries, people noticed that um, you could rescue orphans, give them food, clothing, and shelter. But many of those orphans would still die from sadness, as they called it. And nobody knew why. Even into the 1930s and 40s, people would notice that, um, that you could rescue orphans, give them food, clothing, and shelter. But many of them would still experience all kinds of emotional difficulties and behavioral challenges. And nobody knew why until John Bowlby entered the picture. John Bowlby was a, a British psychiatrist who spent his life working with troubled children. And after World War II, he did a major study in which he was working with um, European children who had been orphaned and left homeless by the war in Europe. Uh, many of them were deeply troubled, all kinds of emotional difficulties, behavioral challenges. One of the main things, and in fact the thing he's most known for, that John Bowlby discovered and presented to the whole world was that 
emotional starvation is just as damaging as physical starvation. In other words, that children don't only need to be clothed and sheltered and fed. They also need to be loved. They need to be held. They need to be touched. They need what Bowlby called secure emotional attachment. And by the way, we never outgrow our need for emotional attachment. If you don't have this in your life, your life will always be driven by fear. And so when God brings Israel into the wilderness, one of the things he's doing with them there is building secure emotional attachment. So when Paul says that you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, this is his way of talking about how God wants to build secure attachment with you. And in fact, the really astounding thing is that Paul is saying, not only do you get to know about this new status, you get a new experience of this status with God. Because look at what Paul goes on to say. You've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. In other words, instead of us encouraging ourselves and building ourselves up when we feel afraid, Paul is saying that, no, no, the Spirit of God himself comes inside of you and he begins to speak to you. His voice comes and says, you are my beloved child and I am your Abba, I am your Father. Friends, think about it. All of the things that we most deeply need, the love, belonging, intimacy, connection, secure attachment, all of that is bound up in this little word, Abba. It's the Hebrew word for Father. You know how little babies, the very first words they speak are always the, the simplest words, things like Baba, Mama, Papa, Abba. The, the word means everything we need most deeply. So when little kids use this word, what, what are they looking for? They're looking for love. They're looking for secure attachment. That's what the Hebrew word Abba means. That, they, they don't want just a knowledge of secure attachment. They want the experience of it. Friends, that is exactly what's available to you through the gospel. It's the healing of our fear, not just the knowledge of God's love for us, but the experience of God's love for us that dissolves our fear and dissolves all of the fear that's driving us and hounding us. Some of you know what that fear feels like and sounds like. You live your lives in constant anxiety. You're always worried about your performance and, and things like um, your performance or your family or your reputation or money or your looks or your weight or your grades at school or your status at work or whether or not the people around you are okay. And if anything happens to any of those things, you hear the voice of fear and condemnation saying, what's wrong with you? You're a failure. You're a loser. How could anybody love you? You should be ashamed of yourself. You know that voice. Now, others of you have been very successful in life so far. And so you may not be as familiar with that voice of fear and condemnation, although you're probably very familiar with some of its cousins. We just call it things like drivenness or ambition. It's that voice that when you do something really great, that, that's the voice that says, great job. But then right behind it is another voice that says, keep it up. And so far, you've been pretty good at keeping it up. But you also know the pressure to succeed and the fear of what would happen to you if you were to fail. Friends, that is the voice of fear in your life. The voice that says that you need to be worthy 
by your performance in order to get the love that you need. Friends, every single one of us needs a deep, life-changing experience of secure attachment in order to dissolve the voices of fear that hound us and drive us. And that leads to our last point. We've seen that God gives us a new status. Secondly, he gives us a new experience. But lastly, God gives us a new foundation. Because here's the question. How do we actually get this experience of God's love? Because remember what we saw at the beginning? Human beings are hardwired for love and belonging. But our access to that love depends on feeling worthy of it. Now listen, do you think it's possible that if you feel worthy, that you stand a decent chance of living a happy, meaningful life? Sure, that's possible. But how secure ultimately will your life be if your ultimate experience of love depends on how you feel about yourself? If you feel worthy, you will feel loved. If you don't feel worthy, you will not feel loved. But notice in both of those scenarios, it, everything begins with you. Before you ever get a chance to start thinking about whether or not you're loved, it all begins with how do you actually feel about yourself? In other words, you are the foundation for whether or not you will have an experience of love. You are the foundation. It all depends. It all begins with whether or not you feel worthy. If that's the case, then your life will always be driven by fear. Here's the question I want to ask. And actually, it's not really my question. It's really the question that the gospel is pressing on every single one of us. The question is, what if instead of beginning with feeling worthy, what if instead we, we could begin with feeling loved? What if we could just take worthiness completely off the table? What if instead of beginning with feeling worthy, what if we could begin with just being loved? That is a very different question. In other words, the, the real question, what if the real question is not, how do I know I'm worthy? What if the real question is, how do I know I'm loved? That is a hugely different question. And it's the difference between a life that is driven by fear and a life that is not driven but led by love. That is a very different question. Uh, one of the best illustrations I ever uh, heard of this describes this perfectly. You know what a shepherd's main job is? Shepherd has lots of jobs. A shepherd's job is to care for sheep, to protect sheep. A shepherd's job is to rescue sheep that get lost. A shepherd has a lot of jobs. But a shepherd's main job is to make sure that the sheep get to pasture. The pasture is life, wholeness, flourishing, well-being, safety. Pasture, a shepherd's main job is to get the sheep to pasture. And a good shepherd gets the sheep to pasture by leading them there. That means a good shepherd is going to get out in front of the sheep and the sheep will follow the shepherd because they trust the shepherd because they know that the shepherd loves them. But what if you've got a lazy shepherd or a shepherd that doesn't care about the sheep or doesn't love the sheep? How is that shepherd going to get the sheep to pasture? That shepherd is going to unleash the dogs and drive them there. Friends, the difference between being loved and feeling worthy is the difference between being led to pasture and being driven there by dogs. It's the difference between being led by love, mercy, compassion, goodness, gentleness, and grace, and being driven 
by the dogs of fear, anxiety, insecurity, trauma, shame, and condemnation. Friends, when Paul says that we are children and sons of God, that's what he's talking about, a life not driven by fear, but led by love. That's why at the very, um, at the very beginning, you notice what Paul said, that all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. All who are led, not driven by fear, but led by love. Why? Because Jesus is the Savior who was led to the cross, not driven there by fear, but led by love. Because Jesus is the only one who always had the most secure attachment with God. His whole life was a life of secure attachment with God. And friends, Jesus was never adopted. From all eternity, Jesus always has been, always is, and always will be the unique one and only eternal Son of God. That no one ever had a more secure attachment with God than Jesus. His whole life was secure attachment with God. So whenever Jesus prayed, he always prayed, Abba, Father, because he was expressing his attachment with God. There was never a moment in Jesus' life that he wasn't constantly experiencing God's love for him, not just knowing about it, but experiencing it, basking in it, enjoying it, resting in it. Every time Jesus prayed, he always prayed, Abba, Father, except once. On the cross, Jesus prayed, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not, My Father, my Father, because Father was the word that Jesus used when he was experiencing the love of the Father. But on the cross, the love went cold. The love was cut off. Jesus was forsaken, orphaned, abandoned. Jesus was forsaken by God. He lost that secure attachment that he had. Can you imagine what that would have been like for him? I mean, think about it. Again, Jesus is the, is the only being in the universe that, that has always known from all eternity what it's like to have secure connection to God. Can you imagine what it would be like all of a sudden to lose that when you've known it from all eternity? The shock, the horror, the bewilderment, the despair, the disorientation, the fear he would have experienced? I can't actually imagine what that would have been like because I don't know what it would have been like to experience connection with God from all of eternity. But Jesus didn't. On the cross, he lost it. Because friends, Unlike the prince and the pauper, when Jesus came to earth, he didn't just pretend to be one of us. Jesus did not just dress up in our clothes. On the cross, Jesus took our place. He received all of the justice we deserve for all of the evil, horror, violence, oppression, and wickedness in this world so that we could take his place in the throne room of heaven and receive all the love, status, honor, glory, and dignity that he deserves from all eternity. Friends, do you want to experience a love like that? Technically, we don't control how or when that happens in our lives. But here's what does happen? If you've been with us, you'll know that, that throughout this series, Paul keeps talking about presenting our members, presenting our bodies to God. That's a way of talking about spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines are ways of presenting yourself, presenting your bodies to God so that he can transform you. That means we don't control the transformation. We don't control the change in our life. God does. But spiritual disciplines are ways of presenting ourselves to God so that he can transform us. One of the great spiritual writers of all time put it like this. He said that we build the altar in one place so the fire may descend in another place. 
It's a great image. We build the, the altar in one place so the fire may descend in another place. An altar is the way we live our life. An altar is the habits, the rhythms, the disciplines of our life. And we all have them already. You already have an altar. You already have a set of spiritual disciplines that are shaping you one way or another. Paul is saying, get a way of life. Get a set of spiritual disciplines that present yourselves to God so he can shape you in the image of Jesus and give you a greater experience of his love. Friends, what this means is we live the way Jesus did. And by the way, please keep in mind, the goal is a changed life. The gospel does not get rid of the need for a changed life. It changes the motivation for it. Instead of being driven by fear, we're led by love. But Jesus still intends for you to change your life. And you'll, you'll notice, if you look at Jesus' life, Jesus' life, his whole life was filled with spiritual disciplines. Jesus was constantly meditating on Scripture, soaking his life in it. Jesus was constantly praying, whether in solitude with God or in community with other people. Jesus served others. Jesus worshipped with others. Jesus' whole life was an altar to God. So when you build that altar in your life and you present your life to God, here's what happens. Maybe once in a while during those things that you're doing and the ways that you're living, you might actually experience the love of God. It's up to him. But a lot of times you don't. You're sitting there in prayer. You're studying the Bible. You're in community group. A lot of times it's just like, I ain't feeling anything. I'm not feeling the love. But a lot of times what happens is this. You're putting the wood down. You're pouring the oil on. You're doing the spiritual disciplines. And you, the, the fire's there ready to be set, but there's no fire. But sometimes God catches you off guard. Because you're doing all this work, you are shaping your life. You are presenting your members to God. A lot of times, God, the fire comes down where you least expect it. You might just be walking down the street or vacuuming your house, or whatever it may be, and all of a sudden, an experience of God's love com comes upon you. And it may be powerful and dramatic. I know that's happened for some people. It may be very quiet for other people. That's usually the way it happens in my own life. It may manifest itself in, in soft tears. But, but the thing is, God's love comes into your life. A lot of times, when you least expect it, the fire comes down, and you hear the voice that says, you are my beloved child. You don't need to do anything to earn my love. I just want you to receive it as my child. Friends, that is the voice that will lead you into a deeper experience of love. It's the voice that says, you're my beloved child. That is a voice that sets you free. It transforms you from a slave into a beloved child of God. And it sets you free from all the fear in your life so that you no longer are driven by fear, but led by love. Would you pray with me? Father, Abba, Lord, we thank you for giving us the status as your children that we could call you Abba, Father, that, Lord Jesus, you traded stories with us so that all um, our story became your story on the cross so that all your story could become our story in the throne room of heaven. Father, we pray this morning that you would give us an ever greater experience of your love. Help us to... Um, present our lives to you, not because we're driven there by fear, Lord. Give us an ever greater experience of your love that leads us more deeply into a changed life, that we would pursue you and chase you in time with you, with, um, by ourselves and with others. And Father, I pray that for all of us, Lord, more and more, when we're gathered together here as a church, when we're scattered throughout the city, Father, that you would send down the fire and give us all an ever greater experience of your love. 
we need that and you have um, given that to us. I pray that you would give it to us and that through that experience, Lord, you would change our lives more and more that we might um, be vessels of your love and your transformation and the healing of fear into the lives of many others around us. For we pray all of these things in Jesus' name, amen.